Good morning, everybody. Do let's have our Bibles open um, at Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18, and also the white bulletin with um, the outline. I think you'll find that's helpful. Let's pray. The Apostle Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that your message to us this morning would be power from heaven and would fall on receptive minds and hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the loveliest stories, I think, in the New Testament describes the conversion of a woman called Lydia. As far as we know, she was the first person in Europe to become a Christian. Uh, You can read about it in Acts chapter 16, which tells us that when the Apostle Paul arrived in Philippi, uh, he was preaching to a group of ladies outside the town by the river. And uh, the text says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. That's rather lovely, isn't it? Of course, that's what happens every time somebody becomes a Christian. Uh, If you're a Christian, then before you ever did anything, the Lord opened your heart to respond to the good news of Jesus. Uh, But the point for us this morning is that Lydia came from the city of Thyatira, which is the location of the church in our passage. Lydia was a businesswoman and she had travelled from Thyatira in modern-day Turkey to Philippi in Greece in order to open up an export market for the purple cloth that was manufactured in her hometown. Uh, In those days, purple cloth was uh, a luxury goods item Uh, It could only be afforded by the extremely rich. Lydia must have been pretty good at her job because she had a home in Philippi which was large enough for the church to hold its services there. Now, a number of experts believe that sometime after she was converted, uh, Lydia returned home to Thyatira and she was part of the church planting team. We can't be absolutely certain of that, but it would have been perfectly natural, wouldn't it, for her to want to share the gospel with friends and family back home. And now, some years later, the church in Thyatira receives a letter from the risen Christ. It's actually the longest of the seven letters, which is a pretty big clue that Jesus saw something there that required the urgent attention of the church leaders. But the message, of course, is not only for them then, because like all of the other letters, Jesus signs off in verse 29 with the reminder, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So it means, doesn't it, that what Jesus says here is also for us this morning and so we need to listen carefully. 
So let's look together at what Jesus has to say, starting with what um, he says right at the beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The archaeologists have discovered that one of the great features of the ancient city of Thyatira is that the city skyline was dominated by a massive bronze statue of the god Apollo, and they believed that Apollo was the son of Zeus, and Zeus was the king of the gods. Everybody worshipped Apollo. And that's why Jesus is introduced here as the Son of God. It's the only time you'll find that phrase in the book of Revelation. And it's reminding the church that Jesus is the true Son of God. That he alone is worthy of our worship. And his eyes, like blazing fire, penetrate to every corner of his church And it's telling us that he can see things that you and I aren't even aware of. Uh, And of course that's something that ought to be happening every time we gather here on Sunday morning. Uh, We want to understand God's truth. But we also want God to shine the light of his truth into our hearts so that we see ourselves as God sees us. And his truth begins to change us. So firstly then, let's look at what the Son of God commends. What the Son of God commends. Verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now every week, of course, we've seen that these letters begin with that familiar verb, I know. I know who you are. I know where you live. I know the problems you're dealing with. And here he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance. So can you see that as those blazing eyes gazed around the church and he looked into the hearts and lives of the congregation, the risen Jesus was saying, looking at my congregation in Thyatira, I see much that gives me great joy and great pleasure. Because this is a busy, active church, and that's a very good thing. There are plenty of churches out there that are very happy to talk about the the, the truth, but which are not actually living it out. But this church, you'll notice, is increasingly active. Notice the phrase, you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus knows that their activity has been generated by love and faith. And that's important because it's very easy, isn't it, for a church to be busy but without any real spiritual substance. But that wasn't the case in Thyatira. So the Lord Jesus commends, he praises this busy, active church for her love. Uh, Do you remember that was the problem in Ephesus, wasn't it? Um, That was the very first letter we looked at. 
And Jesus said to them there that they needed to return to their first love. Apparently they'd forgotten it. Well, they didn't have that problem in Thyatira. Similarly, faith was a problem for the church in Pergamum. The danger was that they weren't actually holding on to their faith. But again, that's not really the problem here. Love and faith, which are two of the great marks of real Christianity, both of those things are in good working order in the church at Thyatira. Their love and faith, their service and perseverance are genuine, they're real. And the Lord Jesus commends them for it. And he also praises them, thanks them, that they are growing spiritually, that they are doing more than they did at first. Friends, I wonder if that's true of you and me. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to start out in the Christian life with a tremendous burst of enthusiasm and then not be quite so keen later on. But these are the things that Christ is pleased with. I also think it's interesting that he praises their perseverance because, you see, perseverance points to a consistency in the Christian life that keeps on keeping on, whatever the pressures and storms might be that come around us. And I think that's a quality that is in very short supply in many churches today, perseverance. So can we see that the the risen Christ is praising the quality of their Christian lives and the quantity of their service? And can I see that can I say that both of those things belong together? If we are genuinely serving God, then we want to do that both in quality and in as much quantity as we can possibly manage. Every church ought to be doing more than it did at first. All its ministries should be multiplying and developing. And all of that is something that Jesus sees, he knows all about it, and he praises this little church at Thyatira. But of course that's only one verse, isn't it, in a much longer letter and we need to move on and consider secondly what the Son of God condemns in verses 20 to 23. Because quite frankly these verses are a bit of a cold shower after verse 19. Verse 20 is particularly direct, isn't it? Nevertheless I have this against you you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now that is what the Son of God condemns. Toleration of that woman Jezebel. Although their faith and love were real and they were keeping on, keeping on with their service, multiplying their ministry, there was a fatal tolerance of an enemy right at the heart of the fellowship. Now, of course, the enemy within is always the most difficult to recognise, isn't it, in any organisation. And I don't suppose that the Christians at Thyatira thought about it like this, which is why the risen Christ, with his penetrating eyes and his searching word, 
reveals to them the reality of the situation. Because, you see, they wouldn't have thought about it like this at all. No doubt the people were saying, you know, such a clever person. So interesting to listen to. Such a fresh message. Now, the question that uh, I've been asking myself this week is how Jezebel managed to get such a hold on a church that otherwise had so much going for it. I think there are two clues in the text. First of all, in verse 20, we're told, aren't we, that she calls herself a prophetess. Now that means that she was claiming that her teaching was given to her by God, that it was divinely inspired, uh, that she'd received fresh revelation from the Lord. But notice the verse actually says that by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So you see, what looks like teaching from God that we all ought to be listening to, and which was no doubt very skillfully and persuasively presented, is actually seducing God's people into idolatry. And that's why the Lord Jesus calls her Jezebel. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that in First Kings, the queen of King Ahab was called Jezebel. Uh, she was the daughter of a pagan priest whom Ahab had married to kind of forge a political alliance for, for the kingdom. But she was a Baal worshipper. Uh, she introduced the worship of a false god into Israel and Ahab was too weak to do anything about it. Basically, Baal worship was nature worship and one of its main features was that in order to encourage the gods of nature to bless your crops, bless your livestock, uh, you went and had sex with a shrine prostitute uh, really to encourage them on to uh, give you fruitfulness in your crops and livestock. So, idolatry was combined with immorality. And those two things always went together in Baal worship. And that's the reason that Jezebel becomes the symbolic name for pagan worship and immorality in the book of Revelation. And that's what's beginning to get a hold of this otherwise very wonderful church in Thyatira. How did she get in? Well, she said she was a prophetess. She said, the Lord has told me to tell you this. I've got a message from God for you. That's how she got into the church. And the sort of thing that she was encouraging them to do would at first have sounded terribly reasonable. For a start, I don't suppose she ever asked the church to stop worshipping Jesus. But you see, Jezebel in the Old Testament said something like this. She said, let me introduce you to a more sophisticated way of worshipping. It's much more up to date than the ancient religion that you've been practising since you came up out of Egypt. But uh, we Baal worshippers 
know that this is the way that contemporary believers deal with the challenges of daily life. Now, doubtless, that's what was happening in Thyatira also, exactly the same thing. Because, you see, Jezebel in the Old Testament wanted to destroy the worship of the living God entirely. So if you read the narrative in 1 Kings, she tried to kill off all the Lord's prophets until only Elijah stood between her and the elimination of the faith of Israel. So when Jesus says, that woman Jezebel is controlling the church, that's the background. And the Christians at Thyatira knew precisely what Jesus meant. And of course we see exactly the same sort of thing happening, not just in first century Thyatira, but also in plenty of 21st century churches. Because you see, churches are always in danger of being led astray when they they listen to teachers or teaching which contradicts what God has said so clearly in the Bible. And those teachings only gain ground in people's lives because they sound terribly reasonable. And you see, what this woman was doing at Thyatira was adding her own ideas on top of God's revelation. And she was leading God's people astray so that they were worshipping other gods and getting drawn into immorality. And can I say that those two things always belong together in the Bible? Because wrong belief always leads to wrong behaviour. Because what we worship determines what we become. If we worship pagan gods, we will become pagan in our lifestyle. And if we truly worship Christ, we will become like Christ in our character and in our behaviour. But I still want to pursue that question, why were they so easily deceived? I mean, this was a church that seemed to have so much going for it. Well, the second clue is in verse 24, where Jesus says to them, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now I think that's giving us some idea of what was going on in the church. Jezebel can lead you into deep secrets. Now I don't suppose for one moment she ever said that the secrets came from Satan because she knew perfectly well if she did you wouldn't listen. But uh, she will tell you deep secrets, deep spiritual reality. And it seems that her teaching was an attempt to combine the, the pagan religion of Thyatira and the Christian faith in the Lord Jesus. It was an attempt to bring those two things together. And I guess she was saying, as many other false teachers were saying in the first century, look, the apostles have taken you so far. Understanding the gospel of the Lord Jesus is an absolutely terrific beginning, 
But there's a lot further to go. Uh, There are deeper truths that we can lead you into. There are spiritual mysteries which this very simple gospel about a cross and resurrection and forgiveness and reconciliation with God, that gospel hasn't shown you these things. All of that is really only step one. And we can take you deeper into the realm of of the supernatural than any of the apostles. Now, can I say that exactly the same sort of thing is being said today in the 21st century church? You go into exclusive books. There are endless racks of books on spirituality. Uh, They all suggest that we can go beyond the Bible and explore the deep mysteries of the spiritual world. It's terribly attractive, terribly seductive, but of course it's nonsense. And here, it was being presented as revelation from God. Jezebel says she's a prophetess. So no doubt, she stood up in the meeting and said, this is the word of the Lord. And then she began to teach her false doctrine. And you see, Christ is saying that wherever you run into anything like that in church, run from it like the plague. Because, you see, all it's actually doing is reflecting the culture outside the church and bringing it in. And it can happen to any Christian, and it can happen to any church. So there was a group of young Christians in London in the 1970s and 80s called the Family International. You can look look them up on the internet later. And uh, they set out to evangelise their contemporaries as widely as possible. And to begin with, it looked like an absolutely terrific ministry. Um, They had a growing audience, particularly amongst students, and they had a dynamic leader who started well. But uh, as his authority grew and as his following grew he began to teach that he had received special revelation from God, that he'd got a special message from the Lord for them. And so although they started out listening to the Bible, they gradually began to listen to the prophet instead. And one of those so-called revelations was that if they were going to reach lots of young people in, in London something called flirty fishing was the way to do it. And they began to use sexual attraction as an evangelistic tool. And before you knew what was happening, uh, the flirty fishing led to gross immorality. And the whole group moved right away from the gospel. And as that movement spread around the globe, particularly in in, uh, the United States, of course, Um, as it spread around the globe, something like a quarter of a million men were seduced into the cult. And there were countless Jesus babies born out of wedlock. Now that is a classic example of what was going on in the church at Thyatira. Someone joins the church, his, his word becomes more important than God's word, And because the leader has got mixed motives, 
the whole group is turned away from the gospel into sexual immorality and into an idolatry basically designed by the prophet. So you see, the sin in Thyatira isn't really a million miles from us after all, is it? Can I say that it's going on in Cape Town all around us in ways we might not even recognise? They're terribly, terribly subtle. And we might not recognise the danger. The risen Christ says there is only one remedy, verse 21. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So judgment must follow. The only way through the crisis is repentance. There's got to be a turning around, there's got to be a decisive break with what is wrong, and an entirely fresh commitment to Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't happen, notice what Christ says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her, and I think that's just a way of saying those who follow her teaching, that's what it's talking about, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children, that's her spiritual children, I will strike her children dead. Now that may sound very drastic to us, but you see that's a measure of how important this was to the Lord of the Church. He's given her time to repent, she rejects the warning, And that must lead to judgment and ultimately death. Then, says the Lord, verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now that's what the all searching eyes of the Lord Jesus see. That's a terribly important sentence in your Bible. You see, the Lord searches hearts, which uh, in the New Testament means the control centre of your personality. It's talking about the place where we make our decisions. And he searches minds, that is our thinking. Our thinking about God's truth and about our lives in God's world. And he knows that our minds and our hearts lead to our deeds. And so we're judged by our deeds. But you see, that's only because our deeds are shaped by our thinking and by our choosing. And that's where the weakness was at Thyatira. They were sloppy in their thinking and they were making terrible choices. Specifically, they were not choosing to get rid of Jezebel. And so, because you see their hearts and minds are mixed, their deeds are going to be mixed as well. You can't separate that. And their behaviour won't glorify Christ, but Satan because the deep secrets that Jezebel is teaching ultimately come from him. 
Fortunately, the whole church was not poisoned by her doctrine. Verse 24 says, there are some who do not hold on to her teaching. But you see, where the church was at fault was that it had failed to discipline this woman and remove her from any position of authority in the church. Now, I hope the application is obvious. It should be. Every single church needs to be extremely careful about who it allows to teach, whether it's in the children's church or the home group or young adults or from the pulpit or in one-to-one discipleship. Whatever the context, you cannot be too careful about the content of the teaching. And everything must be tested by the word of God. And the role of teaching somebody else is actually the most responsible and the most accountable job in the church. Now, of course, all of us, in a sense, teach one another by the words that we speak in casual conversation and the lives that we live And uh, all of us can help one another either to grow in love and faith and in truth or we can distract one another from the ways of Christ. I wonder which one is closer to you. But for those of us with public responsibilities of teaching, I want you to remember that the authority does not lie with the teacher. See, that's where they went wrong in Thyatira. I've no doubt that Jezebel was a very attractive personality, marvellous communicator, and um, they would never, ever have recognised this for what it really was, which is why Jesus had to open their eyes to see it. But the point is, you see, that you must never rely on the teaching, never, just because the teacher says it. See, that's the guru, isn't it? Um, a, gu- a guru operates like that. I say it, you believe it. But that's not the way the Christian teacher operates. No, you only rely on the teaching because the word of God says it. And every time somebody stands in this pulpit, you need to check that what we are saying is what the Bible says. And I want to say to you this morning, if my teaching does not conform with what you're reading in the pages of Scripture, please come and tell me about it afterwards. Because, you see, I have no authority of my own. The only legitimate authority in God's church is God's word. Everything must be judged by Scripture. And any church that moves away from that and uh, starts sort of glibly accepting things because the pastor says it or because the expert says it and they never check it against the word of God. That church is wide open to Jezebel. And I can tell you from my own experience there are plenty of them in Cape Town. So the church in Thyatira is teaching that the Bible must rule everything that we do in practice as well as in theory. 
One last thought. We've looked at what the Son of God commends and what he condemns, but lastly notice what the Son of God commands. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. So two commands here, you see, to Jezebel and her followers, the Son of God says, repent. To everybody else, he says, hold on to what you have. It's the only burden the Son of God puts on us. But it was the key thing, you see, in their situation then, just as it is for you and I this morning. You see, the scriptures contain everything we need for our Christian lives. If we know that, and if we believe it, then we don't need to go chasing after the deep secrets, do we? There's enough depth in the Bible to keep us going for the rest of our lives, to hold on to it. And the things that you don't yet understand, well, pray that the Holy Spirit will open your heart to understand them and study his word and and ask God to make it clear to you. But hold on to what you have until Jesus comes. It's so very, very easy, you see, for Christians to get diverted. I wonder if you can remember that very famous verse in Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You don't need to look it up. But it says, the secret things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. But you see, it's so tempting, isn't it, to want to try and discover the secret things that belong to God that he has not revealed to us. People spend vast amounts of time speculating about the things the Bible doesn't tell us. When all the time there is so much that the Bible does tell us, which we can rejoice in and be enriched by and grow in for the rest of our lives. But you see, if you're always tempted away to the secret thing that God has not revealed, well, you're going to be interested in spiritism and the occult and mysticism and the paranormal. Look at how many films are totally preoccupied with those things. Not the gospel, of course, but those things. All of that will just drift you away from Christ. That's what it'll do. And that's why Jesus says, hold on to the truth. That's what really matters. Why? Verse 26. Because that's the only way that you will overcome And notice this phrase, do my will to the end. Now last week we said, didn't we, that uh, it's one thing to start well, but it's another thing altogether to finish well. How are you doing? Uh, If you've been a Christian for some years, 
Can I ask, are you doing more now than you did at first? Because you ought to be. Are you holding on to his will to the end? Because you see, he's only going to share his authority in verse 26 with those who overcome. And this is the perspective that Jesus wants you and I to have in our minds. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, because that's the authority Christ has. And then in verse 27, there's a quotation. Can you see that in your Bible? And the footnote tells us that the quotation comes from Psalm 2, and I'm sure some of you know, Psalm 2 celebrates the Lord's anointed being revealed to the universe as the sovereign ruler of all nations. Psalm 2 also says, you see, that God laughs at those who rebel against him. He sees Jezebel and her teaching as the ultimate human folly and he destroys everyone who rebels against his rule. Now that is the perspective that you and I need in order to keep us true to scripture. So Christ, who will rule everything by his mighty word, says to his church, Do my will to the end. Hold on to what you have. Now, I know that might not sound terribly dramatic. It doesn't sound very much like a deep secret, does it? But you see, it's actually the secret to everything. Holding on to the truth that we know, firmly pressing on to the end, believing the gospel, judging all our thoughts, our words, our actions and our deeds, judging all of that by God's word. That's the key thing. Do my will to the very end, says Jesus. And to those who do that, there's a rather lovely promise at the end in verse 28, I will also give him the morning star. There was a newspaper in London called the morning star, but he's not talking about that. Later on in the book of Revelation, we learn that the morning star is Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus is saying, I will give myself to him. My eternal life will be in him. I will be in a relationship with him that is everlasting and can never be broken if he or she presses on to do my will and is not diverted by Satan's deep secrets. But there's more because the morning star is also a very special sign of the calling of every Christian. This was new to me when I was preparing the passage this week and it's rather lovely because you see in astrology the morning star is the planet Venus and it shines at its brightest just before dawn. And you see, the idea here is that Christians who hold on to the truth when everybody else is compromising, compromising with paganism and pagan ideas, the Christian who holds, holds on to the truth is like the morning star. 
And our Christian witness, you see, is a sign of the dawning of the day when the Lord Jesus returns to establish his glorious reign over the entire world. So there's the challenge and there's the encouragement. Keep doing his will to the end. Hold on to what you have. Do not be diverted by the contemporary prophets and prophetesses with their mysteries and their deep secrets because they'll just drift you away from Christ. You won't even know it's happening. Everything you need is in Jesus and everything you need to know about him is in his word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we ask that you would write your word in our minds as we understand it, and on our hearts as we make our decisions so that our deeds may be pleasing in your sight. Deliver us from false teaching. Deliver us from being diverted by issues that are unimportant. Help us to hold on to what we have Thank you that in Christ we have everything we need, that we have a sufficient word and a completed work. And please keep us focused on the Lord of the Church, that we may do more than we did at first, in faith and love and perseverance, for the glory of his holy name. Amen.